0: You would stand now for the reading of God's word. We're in our third sermon now in the Advent season. This one we reflect on Mary and Joseph. And we have just a couple passages and we will weave in much more scripture throughout. But here now, as we reflect a minute on Joseph from the Gospel of Matthew. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And now of Mary, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them In her heart. Again, we will hear other passages of them, but that is where we will start. You may be seated. Advent means coming. And when something or someone is coming, we wait for them. And so much of life is spent waiting. One example uh, several of our children this week have been working at. Uh, Samaritan's Purse, and and helping there with all the things around Operation Christmas Child. And each morning, they have a testimony. Elizabeth was telling me that one of the women who gave a testimony of coming to Christ, uh, even through the Operation Christmas Child uh, ministry, but she said back in Romania, there were times where they would wait for 26 hours in line for bananas. Okay, so an extreme example of waiting. Now, here's a, a bit more humorous one. As you look at this slide here and this uh, uh, sign saying, you know, you're going to have to wait here a bit, heavy traffic expected. What was that for? That was for the grand opening in Colorado of an In-N-Out burger. So, In-N-Out burger there, opening. People waited in line in cars 14 hours to get to the In-N-Out Burger. So they're willing to wait a lot uh, for that. But the reality is waiting is a fact of life from birth to death. Think of the, the infant in the, cl- in the crib waiting, Mommy or Daddy, come, come get me up. The child, what's for dinner? When is dinner coming? When can I go play? As they get older, when can I get a phone? Never. But no, even animals wait. Even animals wait. The dog, the dog waits for a bone. The dog waits to be taken for a walk. The animals wait. Our cowardly rooster, Pupcake, waits for us to turn our backs so that he can launch into our calves with his spur. Not doing really his duty, but he's waiting for us too to turn our backs. More significantly, we wait for the right person to marry. We wait for the wedding day. Maybe we wait for a pregnancy. Maybe we wait for a birth. Then if there's a birth, we wait for them to get out of the pumpkin pants, put the diapers aside. We wait for them to get through college. We wait to be debt-free. wait for the results from a medical test. And maybe we're lonely. We wait for a visit for someone We're waiting for things to get better, for the 10 years of 2020 to pass, and take a mulligan for 2021. If waiting was a fact of life, it sure is now. And if you think of waiting for you, is waiting a season of hope? Is it a season of dread? Is it a season of being cynical? What is waiting for you? And the big idea, and you'll see this in the bulletin if you have a bulletin in the outline. The big idea is this: waiting on God involves three C's. See, there's a call. God speaks to us in some way. Yeah, there's a call, and sometimes that's an interruption. That's the first C. God speaks to us with some sort of call. Then we're called to make the right choice amidst that call. The second C. And then the third C is that we are to cling to his promises in hope. That is how we're to wait. And Mary and Joseph are going to help us with our waiting. But in a sense, they'll have to wait just a minute because we're going to go back in Scripture before Mary and Joseph. And so here on a slide, you see a number of different passages that lead up to where we're coming this morning. Way back At the beginning, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve couldn't wait to take the fruit. And in a sense, they kicked off Christmas for us. Because when they sinned, God immediately stepped in and said, there will be a Savior, and you are to wait for Him. He will come from the line of Eve. Her offspring will be the savior. And then throughout scripture, there's a thread of Eve's offspring leading up to the savior. And sometimes that thread would become quite thin and almost be torn apart, but God preserved. We look at even in Egypt with Moses, the people had to wait in captivity under slavery, for a long, long time, for Moses to come as a redeemer, one who pointed to Christ. Even as the people wandered around for 40 years and weren't faithful, Christ takes that and wanders under temptation from the devil for 40 days, being faithful. Moses takes the people right up to the promised land, but then he dies. The people couldn't wait faithfully, they grumbled, they complained, and a generation had to pass away before Joshua, his name Yeshua, just like Jesus, Hebrew, Yeshua, Jesus. We are to see, here is the God who saves, and Joshua took them into the promised land. After Joshua, God sends a king, a redeemer, after his own heart, David. And then his son Solomon. And David taught us to wait in the Psalms. In Psalm 40 he says, I waited upon the Lord and he heard my cry. After those kings the kingdom is split. And the prophets warned people over and over, Wait upon the Lord, Isaiah 40. Wait upon the Lord and you will mount up on wings like eagles. And then the minor prophets continue the theme, waiting. Even Micah that we heard read this morning at the lighting speaks to Bethlehem Ephratha, that even you, lowly city, fear not, you will have a blessing as you wait. And then that takes us towards the last book, of the Old Testament as they're waiting. Now, normally we think of Malachi as the last book in the Old Testament. Yes, in our Bibles, but in the Hebrew Bibles, the last book is actually Chronicles. And we notice something interesting when we look at Chronicles. Chronicles starts with this really long nine chapters of genealogy. And that's where, I think we've got time, so we're gonna do that now. We're not going to read those nine chapters of genealogy. But what we want to notice is genealogy there. We come to the New Testament. How does the New Testament start? Matthew, genealogy, starts with a genealogy, picking up where the Old Testament finished so that we would get many things, but we would also get this one thing that we'll see this morning If you look at the one verse, at the end of the genealogy, meticulous Matthew wants us to see this. He goes through and he says, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and father of, and father of. But we come to, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus, no, no. He breaks the pattern Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, a major switch there. He wants us to get this, of whom Jesus was born. Now, that of whom could be of Joseph and Mary. But meticulous Matthew, one little tidbit here. In the Greek, he did an of whom that was feminine. That means of Mary, not of Joseph. This long lineage, genealogy, notice there's a difference. Virgin birth. Jesus from Mary. Flashing lights that Matthew wants us to get that this that started in Genesis 3 comes up to this point. Here is the incarnation. Now, if you're an unbeliever, a progressive Christian listening, maybe we get nervous about stories about virgin births and God is a baby. And but you think about it. Yes, the Bible, there are no errors, and it is perfectly and true in all that it says with respect to science and all those wonderful things. But does everything have to be just so mechanical? Isn't there something in us that actually longs for, maybe not the magical, but something mysterious? There's something in us that actually craves that. It says, don't be the cynic. Trust and believe that God can do amazing things amazing things. Don't be the cynic like the devil at the beginning. God's not for you. God can't do that. That's not like God. Yes, God does amazing things in this virgin birth, in this incarnation. The Jews were accustomed to expecting a savior from danger, from disease, from death, from bad rulers. Don't we do the same, Jesus? You know, fix everything with the disease, fix everything with the politics. But Jesus came for something bigger. I'm the savior from sin of the world, of your sin, of my sin. Jesus took his, our flesh. Jesus took our flesh upon him, so that he might also take our sin upon him. Christ became man to save his people from their sin. He took on a human body in the incarnation forever. Forever he now has a human body. It was that important that he do this for us. If a king came now, I would picture some kind of entourage like when the the boxer comes into the ring and all the Entourage and around and the people all dressed up and all the gold and the glitter, but all that gold all that glitters is not gold, and all that is gold does not glitter. There was a custom among the shepherds <clears throat> to clothe themselves with sheepskins, so that they would be more pleasing to the sheep. So Christ clothed himself. In flesh our flesh that the divine nature would be more pleasing to us and he came not to the royal city not to jerusalem but to the lowly city bethlehem and not just the lowly city and not just a lowly inn but to a manger cobwebs stink everything Even lower than that, as Martin Luther says, Jesus became Maximus Peccator in the Latin, meaning Jesus became the greatest sinner who ever lived. He became the greatest sinner, not because he committed even one sin, but because he took all of our sin upon him. Jesus did that for us. C.S. Lewis, thinking of the incarnation, he had become from an atheist to a deist, where, yeah, there's a God, but he's maybe just like the clockmaker. He just creates stuff and lets it go. But what was it that brought him to the faith in Christ in a Christian God was that he realized here is not the watchmaker. Here is God writing himself into the story. Writing himself into the story in the incarnation. So that takes us now to Joseph. We'll start with Joseph uh, of the two, and then we'll go to Mary. Mary. Joseph, in the passage in Matthew 1, 8 through, uh, 18 through 25, we just wonder this, as you look at the passage, what can man, what can man who isn't recorded as is even saying a single word teach us about waiting upon God? Simply put, Joseph points us to Christ, not himself. Right? He's, he's a humble man. And I think of Joseph, you know, he's a carpenter, He's a, I picture him as a, as a take charge guy, a fixer, maybe not many words. He's frame this. If something needs to be fixed, I'll do it myself. I'll jump up there. I'll take care of it. I'm a fixer. You know, that's what he's like. He's a type A guy. Good for him. He didn't need to be converted. He's type A, where we all need to be. He's betrothed to Mary, poor, They're both poor, but, but good. He has a great woman. She knows scripture. She loves God. He is marrying up. Good job, Joseph. Now, the passage says that he's betrothed, and then it says married, and then it says divorce. So what, what's, what's going on here? So here's how that works. For the, the Hebrew culture, there were kind of three stages. In the betrothal, there would first be a private commitment, Okay. We are going to be married. I am committed, I promise to you, I promise to you privately. Then there's a public betrothal where it's made public. We are committed to each other. For the Jews, that was almost the same as us being married now. That was that level of commitment. And then there was the wedding day where the marriage was consummated. They were in the public betrothal phase. And that's why this was such a serious commitment to each other. But then Joseph gets his call, his first C, an interruption. What? Mary's pregnant? That's a call I can't fix. I'm a fixer. I'm a carpenter. I can't fix that. Now, he had, in a sense, every right under the Jewish law to have her stoned for adultery but Joseph is gracious. He's just, but he's gracious. And he decides, I will put her aside quietly to avoid shaming her. He might even face ridicule himself for doing it that way, but he chooses amidst that call to be just and gracious like a faithful husband should be. So as husbands, there's a challenge to us. Are we just and gracious to our wives? But as Joseph is about to move forward with this, an angel comes in a dream, speaks to Joseph, son of David. Whoa, that's a fancy title. I better pay attention. Don't fear to take her. And as Joseph is named son of David, You will name this child Jesus. And Joseph does. He follows the call and he chooses to be faithful to what God has called him to do. He names the child at the end of the passage. He named him Jesus. And we think back in Isaiah where God says, I have called you by name. You are mine. He names the child Jesus saying, I receive, I accept He is my child as well. And he clings then. He's been called. He chooses. He clings in faith. He clings in faith. Does he have all the answers? Of course not. How can I raise God? Do we have to only go in the temple all day, every day? Can I take him out and play ball with him? How do I raise God? He doesn't know all the answers. Do we ever know everything? Everything. Do we ever know enough, enough to be faithful, to cling and trust God and embrace his promises? So what about Mary? How does Mary help us to cling in faith? Now, with both Mary and Joseph, we want to realize something. They are not examples in the sense of follow Mary, follow Joseph, like a pray like Paul, Be like David and take up your stones and just be like them. That's what they are, just examples. The way they're examples is they point us to Christ. For Mary, she's not special because she remained a virgin forever. No, no, that's not it. And she's not just to be followed because she never sinned. No, Mary sinned. In her song, she speaks of God, my Savior. One who doesn't sin doesn't need a Savior. She knew she was a sinner. That's not why she's special. Incidentally, I experienced that type of mariolatry growing up. I told some of you before, and on a baseball team, we would come in, bottom of the seventh, we're down, the coach would huddle us up, Two Hail Marys. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou. We use it kind of as a good luck charm. That's not what Mary was about either. Mary is wonderful because how she was called, how she chose to follow God, how she clung to the promises of God and teaches us to do the same. So if we look at... How Mary is called in this, Holy Spirit, or I'm sorry, an angel tells her you're going to have a baby through the Holy Spirit. That's quite an interruption. In Elizabeth, Elizabeth speaks to Mary, and Elizabeth says, putting aside her own longing for a child, and so Elizabeth says, "You are blessed. You are blessed, Mary." She is blessed, and for us, think about it, we are blessed. If you are a believer in Christ, you are blessed. Do you realize how blessed you are? Calvin puts it this way, for the Christian, you are so blessed. You have been bought back. Your debts have been canceled. Your labors lightened. Your vengeance avenged. Your torment tormented your damnation damned, your death dead, your mortality made immortal, your misery swallowed up in mercy. We are blessed whether we admit it or not. Elizabeth says, Mary, you are blessed. And based on that news, Mary has a choice. She could say, well, I'm I'm too, too poor to support a baby, and this wasn't what I was planning on for the next few years. Or she can rejoice. And we see in Scripture this wonderful song of rejoicing, the magnificat, meaning in Latin to enlarge. She wants to magnify. She doesn't make God greater, but she wants us to see how great he is in this song. There's a word pathos that means personal passion and conviction. Okay? And Mary has this. Way back, David Hume, a Scottish philosopher and skeptic, okay, he would go to, and he was not a believer, he would go to hear George Whitfield preach. And somebody said, why do you go hear Whitfield preach? I thought you didn't believe in the gospel. He said, I don't. But he does. He was so enamored by the pathos the passion of whitfield i gotta go hear him that is the pathos that is here in mary's song as she sings of her savior and now here's a challenge for us if someone hears your story about christ do they hear pathos Or do they hear, man, when I was back younger, we had so much fun. We did this, this. I can't believe we did this. It was just partying here and there. And then, well, I don't do that anymore. I'm a Christian now. I want Jesus after that, right? Where's the pathos in that? We need pathos and joy as we point others to Christ. And in her song. She has woven in there. Remember, Joseph, my wife knows Scripture. Yes, she does. Ten Old Testament passages are just coming out of this song here. She knew Scripture, and she was filled with joy. Aquinas says that joy is the emotion of satisfaction. Mary is satisfied in God as a sinner for her Savior. And if we think of Christmas, Christmas has all kinds of worldly joys, but deeper spiritual joys that we hopefully get. We know to say, oh, Jesus is the reason for the season. We need to go a little bit deeper than that in comparing spiritual joys and worldly joys. We could say that spiritual joys are more satisfying. ...than worldly joys. Worldly joys could be like the child who gets the toys, he gets 10 toys. Now I want 12. Next year I want 14. A worldly joy can be envy that rots the bones. Spiritual joy is a medicine. A cure that pushes out the envy. Spiritual joys are stronger than worldly joys. They allow us to stand under trial and hardship... It says of the Thessalonians that they receive the word of God in much affliction with joy. Joy amidst affliction. There are roses which can grow in the winter up to negative 40 degrees. That's what spiritual joy can do, withstand great trials. And then finally, spiritual joys are better because they are more lasting than worldly joys. As you compare, say, the flash of a light from a meteor versus a star that just burns and burns and burns. That is what spiritual joy does for us. So Mary says, be a sinner who humbly receives your Savior and cling to that. So now our application Mary and Joseph, they waited. In a sense, we don't have to wait anymore. Jesus has already come, okay? We have the evidence. We have the deposit. We have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to wait the way that they were waiting for Christ. But we know, as I said at the beginning, life is still full of all kinds of waiting, So three things to ask ourselves, as you wait for whatever it is in life, number one, are you willing, maybe you're waiting on, God, what's what's your will for me in this? Are you willing to commit that I will do God's will before I even know what it is? How often do we say, God, I want your will, but here's what I'm praying. It's going to be X, Y, Z, now bless that. That's not really submitting to God's will. Are you willing to do God's will before you hear it? Number two, as you wait, will you see God as a gracious giver? Contentment. Contentment addresses complaining. Contentment or complaining. Jeremiah Burroughs gives us these tips. He says this of contentment. Make a good interpretation of God's ways with you. What does he mean there? Make a good interpretation of God's ways with you. How often do you get an email from someone or you send it and it just gets taken wrong? Right, well, I meant this and they took it this way. So next time in your email, you got to put 35 little smiley faces in there. So this is a joke. I meant this, I meant this. Stuff gets misinterpreted, right? Don't we so often do that with God? God's interpret. I mean, we need to interpret God's ways for us are good for us. They are always good for the believer. Romans promises us that. That will help our contentment. Thirdly, as you wait, will you see yourself as blessed by God? Mary, you're blessed, Elizabeth said. Brother and sister, do you believe you're blessed by God? Providentially, God is involved in everything. And here's something to think about. Don't let people or possessions define your contentment. Our discontentment so often comes from the luxuries of others. What do we mean there? What if I told you your salary per year is going to be $15,000. Whoa, thanks a lot. I'm not pretty happy about that. I'm not content there. But what if everyone else's salary was $5,000? You're the only one who's $15,000. would not that change your view? Yep. Chrysostom said, don't. Do it based on others. Realize how blessed you are. He said, let us not make the people, in this case, to be our lords. Just as we must not make men lords of our faith, so let us not make them the lords of our comforts. Hope you get that. Don't do it based on others your contentment in seeing the luxuries of others. Finally, I close with this story. heard this just recently. Rod Rosenblatt, he's, he's, I think he's now 80 years old now, theologian, but he was saying way back in his teenage years, he took his dad's car or whatever, went out driving with some buddies, got drunk, they are all drinking, got drunk, Wrecked the car. So he had to call his dad. and His dad's first thing, he said, are you okay? Are you okay? Wow. Oh. Goes home and has to confess what happened. And his dad listens and asks questions and goes through all of it. So he feels awful about having to deal with that shame. Then his dad's one question to him is, so you ready to go get another car tomorrow? And Rod, in his story, says that that was the moment when he became a Christian. Now, when you hear that story, first you say, that's ridiculous, right? Who, are you going to parent like that? <laughs> At least the Kid doesn't get the privilege of getting a car next time. I mean, what are you enabling him to do? That's a ridiculous way to parent. I don't bring up that story because of parenting, I bring up that story because of the ridiculous amount of grace extended to us in Christ. I sinned much more, much worse than that story of that boy going out and getting drunk and wrecking the car. And yet God gives us his son. That's ridiculous. We should have all been punished in hell. But he sends his son in the flesh, humiliated to rescue us. That is ridiculous grace. That is is what the incarnation is about. Would you pray with me?